this hour. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, spring is finally here, and we can see it from, from the sunshine. And if you're in Rock Hill, one of the things that you know uh, that spring is here is because of the, the, the Come See Me Festival, or if you're Grant, the Come and See Me Festival, depending on who you are. Um, well, I love Come See Me, and we went to a couple events this past week. And uh, as, at one event, I, I saw a, a mom lose her cool on one of her kids. The eyes kind of got large. And the voice got even louder, and uh, she spoke harshly to her child. And my first thought to myself was, what is her problem? <laughs> what is this parent's problem? Why is this parent raising her voice at her child? And then my second thought is, Dave, you don't know. <laughs> you don't know how this child may be uh, started in the morning pushing that parent's uh, buttons uh, we have no idea what's going on in that mother's life. Um, I think that most parents desire to be patient with their children. Uh, we all know that if our, if our children were perfectly obedient, we would probably be perfectly patient, right? It doesn't always work that, that way. And sometimes what we do is we kind of enter into the middle of the story. We, we kind of observe certain things happening in a family's life, and we're kind of entering into the middle of the story, and we're going, what gives? Why are you acting like that? Not knowing all the things and the patience that maybe a, a parent has uh, expressed towards a child uh, to them. Well, those of you who have, haven't been working through us on um, uh, through Exodus, what you have seen is you have seen this, um, this picture of um, how God has been working through and showing his patience among uh, the, the Egyptian people. Now, you read here today the, the story that God is going to strike down the firstborn uh, of Egypt, the, the one who sits on, on uh, the throne and the one who is in the poorest of the poor in the, uh, in the handmill. And yet we don't know the, the backstory. Uh, we don't know all the, all the ways that Egypt has expressed their defiance and disobedience towards the Lord. God has been abundantly patient with Egypt for 400 years years. Uh, Egypt has given the Israelites, put them in harsh slavery. Now, when we read through the scriptures, the Bible doesn't give us a lot of depiction of what harsh slavery is. We know that they were, were, they were tasked to, to make bricks and really build up Egypt. But those of you who know anything about slavery, uh, there are a lot of other things that are extremely harsh besides just the labor. Uh, we know that the physical abuse that happens when, when slaves do not do as their masters desire. Uh, we know about the, the verbal abuse that is, that is repeated and habitual among slave masters. And we also know, sadly, uh, that, that abuse extends even to uh, sexual abuse. And we, we see in chapter 1, if you, you, you remember in Exodus chapter 1, uh, Egypt, the Pharaoh was afraid of what was happening in, um, in Israel among the Israelites, because there were many, and Pharaoh said in verse 22 of chapter 1, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, and you shall let every daughter live. Every son you shall throw into the Nile. Pharaoh was executing genocide among the Israelites. So sometimes we, we come into the middle of the story, we say, well, that seems a little harsh, God, to strike down the firstborn. But for 400 years, God has demonstrated his patience against Egypt. And even, even 
through these last few chapters. These are kind of in, in quick concession, these different plagues. And, and each time, how, how often has the Lord warned Pharaoh, let my people go or else. So each time he had a chance. How many chances did God give the Egyptians to repent? He has been tremendously patient with Egypt. He's even seen that in, 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 the, in the story of the hail, for example, when he says, the hail is coming, and if you don't want to be destroyed, go and, and hide from the hail. And many of the Egyptians listened to that warning and, and hid themselves and, and lived. The question, the time and time again as you're reading this narrative, is how long will it take Egypt to repent? How long will, will Pharaoh refuse to humble himself? And as we looked at last week, the question we want to ask of our own heart, how long will it take us? How patient has God been with you? How patient and kind God has endured with your disobedience, with your rebellion. And I would ask you, how long will it take for you to repent? Let's walk through this text. The first thing we see is the final plague, the final plague in chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more. I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt afterward. He will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. This is actually the first time in the Hebrew scriptures where you see the, the little word for the Hebrew word for plague there, which means to strike or, or blow. This is the 10th the blow that God is bringing upon the Egyptians. We're in baseball season, and we know that in, typically it's three strikes and you're out. Well, here, this is the 10th strike that God is allowing the Egyptians to repent. And when we think about these plagues, these 10 strikes, these 10 blows, what does they reveal to us about God? And I pray that when you think about what the plagues reveal to us about God, you would think about God in your own life. When you're studying the scriptures for yourselves, you should ask yourself, when you read a passage of scripture, is what is revealed here about God? What does this passage of scripture tell me about God? Because the Bible is not about you. The Bible is about God and his glory. We want to study the Bible in that way. So what does the, the, the plagues teach us? Well, I've already said it one, that God is patient. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance, to eternal life. That's why there was 10. God could have done it instantly, but he, he was patient with the Egyptians. Two, I think that it shows that God is sovereign over all. He is in complete control of nature. We've seen that. He's in complete control of the human heart. We've seen that. He is in complete control over all people, not just the Israelites, but all the world. This is one thing we have to remember living in a pluralistic society because there's a lot of people who will say, well, it's fine for you to be a Christian. I'm going to do my own thing. We live in that relativism, right, where your, your way is your way, my way is my way, we're all good. Well, the Bible doesn't speak that way. The Bible says is that the Lord is the sovereign God over all. Not only those here, but all the entire world. The plagues show us that. Egypt had to bow before the Lord. Thirdly, he, he is, he's almighty. Whatever the Lord wants to do, he does. He is that powerful. He not only says he's going to do it, but then he has the power to accomplish it. Fourth, the plagues teach us that God is just. Uh, Dr. Martin um, Luther King would say, the arc of the moral universe is long, and it bends towards justice. 
That's what we see here. We see 400 years, the, the people of God being uh, persecuted in harsh slavery. And what do we see? We see that their day is coming when justice is going to happen. God will execute his justice upon the, the, the sins of Egypt. God will punish all sin and sinners. How is that encouraging for us? If you are here and you have been wronged in a severe way, know this. Your abuser, your attacker, the one who has done you wrong will be punished. God will not be mocked. And if you are here and you, you are that one who has wronged, be warned that God will not make light of your sin. Lastly, what the, the plagues teach us, I, I think, is that God is jealous. God is a jealous God. We see what God is doing attacking the Egyptian gods again and again. He's trying to say that I want all your worship. That there is no one like me. Follow me. I want it all. And as we see God striking down the, the idols of Egypt, God wants to strike down your idols. He wants to, to strike down the idol of, of sex and money and, and reputation and power and comfort. He wants to strike that down. Why? Because he wants all of you. He, he allows things to happen in your life because he's a jealous God because he wants your ultimate good. And he knows that he is the ultimate good. And when you worship him, your life is best. That's what he wants. He is a jealous God. Well, not only do we see the beginning of this final plague, we see God's favored people. Number two, God's favored people. Look at verse It says, God, the Lord says to Moses, Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of his neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. So these are slaves going to their slave masters and says, Give me your stuff. Give me your silver and give me your gold. And what does the Lord do? Verse 3, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Not only will they let you leave, but they'll let you leave with their goods, with their silver and their gold. This is just a sign of the Lord's favor. You can read a lot of different commentaries in terms of what does this gold and, and silver represent? Some would say it's Israel's wages. Okay, you have labored for 400 years. Well, let us give you this, this money as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a payment for your labor. Some would say this is the, the, the payment for their freedom. They're, you're going to pay, have all this for the redemption. There's a, there was a price, a ransom price for them to be freed from slavery. Uh, some would be this is God's way of saying that, that Egypt was conquered by a military tribute, that they were giving their, uh, their, their gold and silver to their conquerors, which was often happened in the ancient world. Regardless of whatever side you would fall on there, I would just say very clearly that it's a sign of God's favor. God is showing favor to his people to make distinction between his people and the people of, of Egypt. And I think there's just a kind of a warning to us is that if you follow this narrative along, this, this gold and this silver, which was a blessing from God, turns into what? It turns into a golden calf. That's an idol that they bow down and worship. I would just say this, for those of you who are here who are walking with Christ, God has given you many blessings. He has shown his favor upon you numerous ways. But do not let the favor of God in your life turn into a snare. Do not let the resources that God has given you grab your heart. Do not let the blessings of God be the ones you hold on to rather than, than God himself. 
Because what if God takes away the things that you're grasping onto, the, the favor of, of financial blessing or, the, or holding on to your health, which is also a blessing of the Lord? Well, then you lose the Lord himself. So I pray you would hold on to him. Number three, we see the firstborn price. The firstborn price. Look at verse four. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a very great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. And not a dog shall growl against any of the, free, of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that they may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. I've been trying to try throughout the plagues that the, in many ways that the, the, the ten strikes, the ten blows, is really kind of God unpacking nature, right? So God gave ten words, ten let there be's in Genesis 1, and what you see is this kind of this unraveling of, of creation. It's interesting because every single one of the first nine plagues, there have been science scholars or scientists trying to show that these are natural phenomena. Well, yes, the, the, there was the sun that was blotted out, but that was really just a solar eclipse. Well, yes, the, the locust came, but that really was just a, a natural phenomenon of, the, of the, an east wind coming. We have seen other plagues or other locust plagues throughout, throughout history. Well, at the, at the end of creation, what does God do? God forms man and he breathes life into him. God creates life. And what do we see here? God taking life. He's undoing his creation among the Egyptians. These nine plagues, the first nine plagues, God used Moses as an intermediary. So Moses, do this, raise your staff, and things, the, 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 the plagues would happen. But notice that God is not using Moses here. He says he's going to do it himself. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, chapter 11. Yet one plague more I will bring. And again in verse 4, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt. See, this last plague, when the firstborn of Egypt will die, from the firstborn of, of, of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the slave girl to the firstborn of cattle, there will be no natural cause. There will be not even a natural idea of how this could have happened. No, this is going to be very clear that the Lord is the one who's in charge of life and death. You notice at the end of chapter 10, what Moses says to Pharaoh, or Pharaoh says to Moses, rather. Um, then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on that day you see my face, you shall die. What Pharaoh is saying is I'm the one who controls life and death in this kingdom, and if I see your face again, you will die. And the Lord, again, is showing that, no, there is only one who has the power of life and death, and that is the Lord God himself. What we know about Egypt, uh, Egypt had a, had, a, had a strong culture of death, meaning that they, they lived for the afterlife. Uh, so if you go to museums throughout the world, what do you typically find? You find uh, mummies, Egyptian mummies or, or tombs. Uh, the, the ancient pyramids themselves were, were built to, 
to kind of give the, 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 the kings of Egypt, the pharaohs, a, a good afterlife. Uh, it has been said that they spent more on the afterlife than any other culture throughout history. Uh, the god of the dead, Orcerus, was known as the mighty one. He was, he was the mighty one who, who has sovereign power. Uh, it's interesting, even uh, um, Osiris' uh, assistant was Anubis, and Anubis is, 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 was always pictured as a canine. Uh, so if you ever look in, in Egyptian art, you see a lot of times you see a, uh, a statue with a, with a dog head. That is Anubis, who's going to bring people from this life to the next. I think that even in how this is kind of worded in, in verse 7, you see God trying to take a shot at Anubis, because it says that not even the dog will bark at my people. God is showing that he is the sovereign one. God is bringing really justice down upon Egypt. If you remember back to Exodus chapter 3, uh, verse 7, God's word says this. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. The word cry there is the same word that you see in verse, verse 6. Now, remember, when you're in an auditory culture, they, they communicate it with words. They use specific words and a specific time to create meaning. So it says, my people cried out to me, and now you are going to cry for what you've done for my people. It's a very clear connection. So what do you see in verse 6 of chapter 11? It says, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. God's word says in Galatians chapter 6, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. You reap what you sow. And the Egyptians sowed pain. They sowed suffering. They sowed death. So what is God in his kindness going to do? He's going to be a God of justice, and he's going to bring that which what they sowed upon their own head. How comforting, beloved, is it to know that God is the one who brings justice, that God is always there to, to be, to, to right the scales at the end of, of history. You know, and our world gets this. You know, some people say, well, people don't understand God and people don't understand the world. The Bible says it very clear in Romans 1 that God has made it clear throughout this world that he exists, right? He's kind of written certain things into the fabric of our world. So let me give you an example, this, this idea of, of Avengers, right? There are people right now who are not at church because they're binge-watching all the, the old Avenger movies so they could be ready for Avengers Infinity War. If that's you, I'm not saying if it's you doing that right now because you're actually with me, right? But if you're watching all those, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying there are people who are doing that, okay? Um, and and what, what, are they, what are they thinking about? How will these Avengers, these remaining Avengers, avenge Thanos? Or how will they exact satisfaction for a wrong committed, for the wrong that he committed? How will they exact vengeance upon him? How will they avenge? Right? Our world understands justice. Our, our, our world understands that wrong needs to be avenged. If you have your Bibles, just flip over to Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And just see how God is ultimately our, our avenger. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Finally, then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you may do so more and more. For no 
what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now hear me, one of the besetting sins of our day is sexual morality. Right? The world wants you to bow to the God of sexual morality, saying that you can do whatever you want with your own body. And the Bible is very clear that your sanctification is to be holy, to learn how to use your body to honor the Lord. That is a fight. Living in this sexually crazed culture, that is a fight. Young men, that is a fight. Young women, that is a fight. Parents, that is a fight for you and for your children. It is real. But notice what God says here. Verse 5, verse 6 rather, that no one transgress or wrong his brother or sister in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Beloved, God is an avenger. If you are living in sin, God will bring his vengeance upon you. That's what the, the whole picture of the plagues kind of communicate, that God will not let sin reign forever. He is patient, he is kind, but if you continue to reject him, he will avenge his name. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You sow, you reap what you sow. He did it upon Egypt, and he's going to do it upon the whole entire world. Because remember, the plagues, all the plagues that you see in, 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 in Exodus are the same plagues you see at the end of history in Revelation 9 through 16. God is going to, to bring his full vengeance upon the earth. How comforting is that to know that when you have been wronged in a severe way that God will avenge you? And yet how much of a warning does that give us if you are the one who is doing wrong? Beloved, the, the goal of the plagues, the goal of really all the scriptures, is that you would know repentance in Christ. That you would turn from your sins, you would turn from trusting in yourselves, and you would turn to Christ, who came to, to take your sin upon the cross, to live that life that you were called to live, and, and die the death that you deserve, that you and I deserve. And then being raised from the dead to give us hope for the resurrection to come. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that, that Jesus delivers us from the wrath that is to come. It's only in him. This is not new. Pharaoh should have known what was going to happen. He was just ignoring God. Just like it says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is not, if, if you're not listening to this, you don't reject man, but you're rejecting God. Pharaoh was thought he was rejecting Moses. But go back to Exodus chapter 4. What does Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 say? This is the Lord speaking to Moses. It says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. If you take my son, I will take yours. Before the plagues even started, that's what God clearly communicated to Egypt. There's a consequence of sin. We can look at the consequences of Egypt's sin against God's firstborn son, Israel. 
demanding a response, but we also have to look at the consequence of our sin against God's firstborn son, the Lord Jesus. But sometimes we think that we only wrong God the Father. But when we sin, and we all sin, we actually sin against the, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is the one who created us. It says it very clearly in John 1 and Hebrews 1 and Colossians 1. He is one with the Father. So when we sin, we sin against the Son. And the consequence of that sin is death. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, it just says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And friends, we cannot cheat death. No, we're, we're, there's two things that are, that are true in America, death and taxes. Now, there's a lot of people who are trying to cheat taxes now, right? Thinking about that, I don't want to pay that, that Uncle Sam. But listen, you can't cheat death. Now, our culture wants you to think that you can prolong it as long as you can through all the different treatments and all the different, you know, we can look younger, longer, right? We can, you know, remove as, uh, the pain and, and the sting of death with all the different things in our world. But just know this, life is a vapor. It's a mist. It's here one minute and it's gone the next. How often do you think about your own mortality? How often do you think that one day you're going to breathe your last and you're going to be face-to-face with God? When you do, are you going to be ready? You know, I think in our day, we, we kind of have tried to put death all the way to the, to the farthest part away from us. Those of you who are coming from a different age, death was kind of part of life. People died more regularly. Most grandparents and parents, they died in in, in homes. They didn't go to hospice care. They died actually in their their own bed. We have kind of pushed it to the side. Death is on the periphery. It's on the outside. But if today was your last day, what would you do? How often do you just sit and think about that? I think as me as a father and a husband, what do I want to do? I want to shield my kids from death as much as I can. But I think that's not always good. Because they, like me, need to remember that I'm mortal. That one day I'm going to die and I'm going to meet a holy God. When Martin Luther was dying, um, a friend, uh, Justice Jonas, came into his room and said, Do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine you have taught? We know that he taught that you're justified, you're made right with God by faith alone in Christ alone, that song that we sing. Do you want to stand firm on that, Martin? He said, yes, we are beggars. This is true. How about you? When you breathe your last, what will you say on that day? Will you put your trust in your beauty or your bank account? Or will you simply say, I am a beggar? And I need Christ. Lastly, we see this fury at pride. The fury at pride. Verse 8, chapter 11. It says, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out you and all the people who who follow you. 
and after that I will go out. Just as a, as a side note, what you see here is that there's people in Egypt who are going to leave Egypt and follow Israel and going to follow Moses and Moses is God. Why? Because they have come to know that he is the one true God. So those all who follow you, get out. We don't want any of you to stay. But notice what happens here. And he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Now Moses was standing before Pharaoh time after time saying, let my people go or this will happen. And Pharaoh just staunchly in his pride would say, no. Or or you could go a little bit of the way. No, only the men can go. Fine, you can go, but just leave the cattle. Time after time, you see Moses dealing with the, the, the arrogance and the pride of Pharaoh. And I think what God is showing us through Moses' response to Pharaoh here is that one day, patience will run out. One day, Moses will be, I've had enough. And he stormed out of the room in hot anger. I don't know about you, but if you've ever dealt with that level of arrogance and pride, something kind of wells up in you, and you're like, enough! I'm done! Now, we don't want to be that way. We want to be kind. But when you see sin rear its ugly head, you want to be enough. I'm sure some of you have, have been there, burning with that hot anger against sin. Listen. Moses was like that with Pharaoh. And beloved, God one day is going to have his furious wrath against all those who are pridefully arrogant, rejecting his kindness. Moses walked away and turned his back on Pharaoh. Friend, listen to me. If you continue to reject God and his word, one day the Lord will finally and ultimately walk away from you and turn his face from you in hot anger. Luke chapter 18, we see this parable that Jesus shares. He says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So there was, there was people like Moses, or like, sorry, like Pharaoh, who thought that they were righteous Right? They were the ones who was, was on, on the right. They were prideful and they were arrogant. They were treating others with contempt. And God spoke this parable to them. Two men went up to a temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down from his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Friend, listen, we are all beggars. (laughs) We have all sinned against a holy God, and our only hope is trusting in the one 
who humbled himself. The Bible says that we should have this mind among ourselves like the Lord Jesus, who had everything but became nothing, taking the very form of a servant being made in human likeness. And when being found in likeness as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. The Lord, the King of glory, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, the Bible says, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, all we have to do to, to have confidence on our last day is to know Christ. It's to humble ourselves. It's not to, to trust in our goodness, trust in our self-righteousness, but to trust in the righteous one, right, who humbled himself, was dead and buried, and was exalted to the highest place. All we must do is confess and live for Jesus. That's what we are called to do. Pharaoh hum exalted himself and was humbled. Jesus humbled himself and was exalted. What will you do? Will you exalt? Or will you humble? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God, that you are our King and our Lord. Father, we thank you that in our last day, our hope will not be in anything but Christ and Christ alone. Father, we are beggars, and we beg for Christ to be more in our life. God, we pray that you would work humility in our hearts and in our minds, that we may better serve you. We ask this in Jesus' name.